Hello and welcome to EGY Podcast, Voices on the World of Work. I'm your host, Bianca Luna Fabris, and in this episode, we'll be hearing all about the Adequate Minimum Wages Directive with Esther Lynch, Deputy General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation, and Torsten Muller, Senior Researcher here at the ETY. Okay, well, thank you so much, um, Esther and Torsten, for being with me and with us today. Um, and I think we can actually start with a very basic question. What is the Directive on Adequate Minimum Wages and what does it entail? So good morning, Bianca. The Directive on Adequate Minimum Wages is a piece of law that will mean that member states have an obligation to check that the minimum wages, their statutory minimum wages that they pay to people are adequate. And then there's lots of provisions setting out what that means. Importantly, it also recognises that the only way wages are ever going to be truly adequate and fair is to make sure that they're collectively bargained wages. So making sure that workers can join a union and can have their right to collectively bargain for a fair wage recognised. And it does that in a couple of different ways. So really what this is, it's a law about increasing wages in Europe. Okay, brilliant. Um, thank you so much, Esther. I have another question for you, and it might sound a bit stupid, but it's not entirely uh, maybe clear to me and maybe also for some of our listeners. What role did the ETUC have in this process? The main role of the ETUC in this process was lobbying very hard to make sure that the provisions would actually bring about a real change for working people. There's always a risk when new laws are being made that they're very well intentioned, but they don't work in practice. So we were very present to make sure that our elected representatives who made this law were absolutely understanding what the facts on the ground are. So the facts on the ground are that many workers, uh, when they try to join together in a union, their employer pushes back on that in so sometimes subtle ways, but sometimes very old-fashioned straight-in-your-face discrimination against people. What this directive now says is that member states can't look the other way when that happens. Member states need to have an action plan to increase the number of workers who uh, have a collectively bargained collective agreement. And that means making sure that employers are not union-busting, making sure that employers are not deciding not to recognise the union. So it puts a very, very strong obligation on member states in the EU to take their responsibilities to promote collective bargaining seriously. Okay, but I, I assume that you've been working uh, quite relentlessly on this directive for the past few months. Well, well actually, maybe it's, it's better to say a few years at this point, uh, I would say. Then my question really is, were all of your demands taken into account? Uh, I would like to say yes, but the answer is no. There were particular measures that we really wanted to see and that we were just unable to persuade enough member states to agree with us. So an example of that was we wanted to ban the practice uh, where employers would make deduction from minimum wages. We see all sorts of exploitative practices where minimum wage workers do a hard week's work and then the employers come for a second bite by taking money out of their wages, whether it's for water whether it's for their lunches, whether it's for their uniforms, or whether it's for all sorts of spurious practices. We even have examples in some sectors where workers almost end up owing money at the end of a week's work, and we wanted to ban that practice. 
We weren't able to ban it, but what we were able to do was to put in measures that would limit it, that would make sure that member states had an obligation to examine what's going on and to make sure that those practices were not excessive. But that's not the same as banning it. We had wanted a ban. And of course, it's open to every member state to do more than what the EU law requires. It's open to every member state when they transpose this directive to take it as an opportunity to ban those exploitative practices. They've no place in the European labour market. They've no place in any market, but they particularly no place in the European workplace. Thank you, Esther. Um, very clear. My second question would be, the directive doesn't only focus on statutory minimum wages per se, but it also has a very strong focus on the promotion of collective bargaining. Then how will the directive reinforce collective bargaining in those countries that have a weaker coverage? So the member states are required to sit down with unions and employers and to develop an action plan to promote collective bargaining. Now, what that will look like, it will be different in different member states. So, for example, in all member states, we can already expect that there will be measures to use public procurement. So to use the trillions of euros that uh, governments spend in buying services, buying products, for example, getting schools built, getting roads built, that in future they need to make sure that the decisions on who gets the tender are not on the basis of lowest pay on cutthroat competition by keeping unions out. That won't be possible after this directive is transposed. Member states will need to make sure that those companies that refuse to respect unions' right to collective bargaining, it's not compatible to give them a tender and at the same time saying I'm promoting collective bargaining to get to 80%. Okay, now I have a, a question for you, Torsten, if you don't mind too much. So when we're talking about countries that have less than 80% of collective bargaining coverage, what countries are we referring to? Well, I think at the end of the day, it's easier to name the eight countries which have more than 80% coverage. And that's basically uh, Italy, France, Austria and Belgium with even more than uh, 90%. And then we have four other countries, the three Nordic countries, Finland, Sweden and Denmark and Spain between 80 and 90% coverage. And all the other 19 EU member states are below 80%. And they have to put up this action plan, which, which Esther just mentions. And I think the key point here is when we talk about these eight countries with a coverage above 80%, these are all systems where sectoral bargaining is the dominant way of collective bargaining. And I think this is a very strong call in the directive to establish and promote sectoral bargaining. Okay, so it's clear to me that one part of the legislation focuses on collective bargaining and the other part on statutory minimum wages. So which countries have a statutory minimum wage and among those, which have the highest and lowest minimum wage? And maybe, um, Torsten, you want to jump in on this one. Yeah, once again, there are 21 uh, member states that have a statutory minimum wage, so I will spare you the long list. And I think, uh, once again, I will tell you those countries which don't have a statutory minimum wage. That's that's easy. And once again, the three Nordic countries, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, and then Austria, Italy, and Cyprus, they have no statutory minimum wage. And if we talk about the absolute level of the statutory minimum wage, then we can actually distinguish three groups in Europe. There are the ones with more than 10 euros, and these are all Western European countries. 
countries ranging from Luxembourg with 13 euros which really tops the table to at the moment Germany uh, with 10.45 but Germany will increase it soon to 12 euros so there will be some some changes there then we have a small middle group around 6 euros uh, that's only Spain and Slovenia very small group and then we have a huge group of 12 countries uh, all southern European and central and eastern European with minimum wages at or below 5 euros and that group ranges from Malta and Lithuania with 450 to Bulgaria actually with only two euros but bear in mind these are all minimum wages in euros so in some countries you have uh, currency uh, calculations here but a huge variation as you can see all right very very clear thank you so much uh, Torsten so Esther how will the directive impact statutory minimum wages in the countries where they exist and what role does the directive foresee for unions well it's already the case that throughout Europe, minimum wage workers can't make ends meet. Uh, research, for example, that Torsten and his colleagues there have done at the ETUI demonstrates that minimum wage workers are spending 60 days at work before they can afford to pay their energy bills. Now, a human rights standard on that brings it in around 20 days that you should be working, so three times as long as you should be working. So we can already with confidence say that minimum wages throughout the European Union are not adequate for people to be able to live on. Sometimes we say this and then we move on to the next topic, but this is millions of workers, heads of household going home after a tough week's work. And I started out as a minimum wage worker, toughest work I ever did. Tiredest I ever was at the end of a week's work was when I was a minimum wage worker. And it's not sustainable to try and build a European Union where we say nobody's left behind, when we're leaving millions of hardworking people behind. So I think that really the call has to go out to member states to take their responsibilities seriously at this time. And what that means is taking the measures, no matter what pushback that they get from the elites, but they need to make sure to take care of the most vulnerable at this time. And that means increasing minimum wages. So... Another lay question, and I apologize for this, but it's not entirely clear to me. So for those countries that don't have a statutory minimum wage, which system do they have in place? Is it always a sectoral collective bargaining agreement? Torsten, maybe, maybe you want to take this one. Well, I mean, that means that if you don't have a statutory minimum wage in those six countries, minimum wages are basically established by collective bargaining, which means that the lowest wage group um, in each collective agreement determines the minimum wage. In some countries like Austria, the unions agree that uh, no collective agreement should be signed below a certain threshold of a monthly minimum wage. But by the very nature of things, minimum wages in these countries are negotiated. And that's why we need uh, such a high coverage in, in these countries and actually see a high coverage in most of these countries. Okay, so before we move on to the cost of living crisis, I have a, a final question that rounds up the section on on the directive per se. So Esther, which safeguards does the directive include to protect the well-functioning of collective bargaining systems in countries that do not have a statutory minimum wage? So this was a really important issue for the trade union movement because it would be entirely counterproductive to conclude a directive that would reduce anybody's wages anywhere. And there was a risk, in particular in Nordic countries, where the system is so different and is built entirely on collective bargaining 
that there would have been an interference or a way of holding back collective bargaining being the solution on wages. So the directive is very clear. It says that there's no obligation on member states to introduce a statutory minimum wage, that the systems where you have over 80% of collective bargaining don't need to have an action plan. And in fact, there's even a provision that says that member states can ask the social partners to come up with the action plan and to implement the action plan. But let's be clear what's very important in member states where there's less than 80%, there has to be an action plan. We have to be able to track progress. It can't be an action plan in theory, but not in practice. We'll have to be able to look at the end of that action plan, at the end of a period of some years to say, well, how has uh, the number of workers covered by a collective agreement increased? And if it hasn't, well, then obviously the action plan isn't working. Whereas Torsten says, we can look for decades an experience of the type of measures that are needed to boost collective bargaining and absolutely critical to that is sector bargaining because if you wait until you do company by company by company, you're not going to get the scale that you need. This is a really exciting time for workers. It's an important time for us to stand together. It's an important time for us to recognise that we need to support each other in our struggles to get fairness in terms of our pay. And I think that this directive really puts the EU on our side in asking for that. But it's all important. This won't work unless workers join a union and unless the union works with other unions and that we we work with each other throughout Europe. So I would like to round up the episode with a topic that is very high on the political agenda, both nationally and at a European level, and that is the cost of living crisis. And I'll add a few links in the show notes because um, the ETC has just very recently launched a campaign on this. So my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that the directive on minimum wages will be implemented and will be transposed into national legislation in the next, like, what, two years? But we're living a deep crisis right now, uh, especially for those that are paid minimum wage. So my question really is, what role does this directive have, if any, on uh, the cost of living crisis? And maybe, um, Torsten, you would like to jump in first and then maybe, Esther, you can follow up. Well, I think, first of all, the immediate impact of the directive will be that there will be discussions about increases of minimum wages. And we see this already. I mean, I mentioned the the minimum wage increase in Germany to 12 euros. And that actually anticipates the directive to a certain extent, because this will be 60% of the national median wage. And that is one of the thresholds which the directive actually stipulates as a guideline for the member states in setting minimum wages. In other countries, I mean, in Ireland, Esther knows it much better than I do in Ireland, the political actors also discuss an increase of the minimum wage with reference to these kind of thresholds. In the Netherlands, we see discussions around this. So we see already that even without being implemented, this directive already has an impact and shapes the debates in terms of adequate minimum wages already. And I think the same we can say with collective bargaining. I mean, the DGB, the the German Trade Union Confederation already asked, so why wait for the uh, transposition of the directive? let's start with an action plan right now. So we see that this directive already shapes the debate and the demands of progressive actors in the various countries already. And once it is transposed, I think, or implemented, I think the the impact is immediate because, or obvious, because as Esther says, I mean, millions of, of workers will see their minimum wages increase. And I think that's 
essential in a cost of living crisis as we have it now because we have volatile export markets and it's important that increasing and adequate wages, in particular minimum wages, secures internal demand and boosts the economy because these workers are the most affected by inflation. So that's why this directive is now actually even more important than, than in so-called normal times. But I want to leave it at that now. Bianca, if I could just say on that as well, that although the transposition date is two years from now, the reason it's two years is because member states need time to get their laws in order. So they already need to take the steps now so that by the time the two years is up, that everything that they have corrected, any deficits that they have in their existing laws or practices that ensure that employers properly respect workers' right to organise and workers' right to collective bargaining. For some member states, they need to get busy very quickly because it's very far from a regime that uh, properly respects the right to organise and collective bargaining. So it's not that member states can sit back and do nothing for two years. They need to already start taking the steps so that they're ready. But on the adequacy of minimum wages, Torsten is absolutely right that we need action now. There's no point in waiting uh, two years before looking at the adequacy of minimum wages, given the current uh, cost of living crisis that workers are in. And then finally, the forgotten value of this directive is that in the last crisis, in the financial crisis, there were two extremely damaging things done to workers and their unions. The first was to make decisions to reduce minimum wages. And the second was to make decisions to remove sector collective bargaining. This directive should act as a shield against those types of very bad damaging, counterproductive decisions being made again. And that's one of the forgotten values of this directive. And it, that was a lot discussed during the development of the European Pillar of Social Rights, which is the big rights framework that was adopted to indicate a change in direction by the European Union from the decisions it made during the, the financial crisis. So I think that value shouldn't be forgotten either that it should act as a shield against any possible bad ideas, bad decisions being adopted. Excellent. I think we've come to the end of, of our episode. Thank you so much to Esther and Torsten for being with me and with us today. And also thank you for everyone that has been sticking throughout the episode and has been listening this far. Um, you'll be able to find a few links in the show notes, a few articles of Torsten and obviously all of the material of the ETUC, both under Directive Per Se and on the cost of living crisis. Um, thank you so much and please tune in for the next one. <laughs>